0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to the London School of Economics virtual event. I am Grace Lorden. I am the founding director of the Inclusion Initiative, who are the hosts of the event this evening. I'm also an Associate Professor of Behavioural Science um, here at the LSC. And I'm also the author of Think Big, the book that you can see on the poster, which is the only bit of self-promotion that I'm going to do tonight because I have a guest that I not only have been a fan of for a very, very long time, I've now renewed my fandom by reading her book, um, The Authority Gap. Um, So it's with great pleasure I want to introduce um, Marianne Seacart. Marianne, most of us will know that she makes programs for BBC Four. She has spent time being an assistant editor at The Times. She's the trustee of the Scots Trust. And what you may not know is that she is currently a visiting fellow at King's College London. And that in 2018 to 2019, she was a visiting fellow of Old Souls College, Oxford, where she researched the book we're going to speak about tonight, The Authority Gap, which is all about why women are taken less seriously than men. And I think this book really is academic nonfiction in the best possible way. It is heavily researched, it is heavily cited. It also relies on a wealth of data, secondary data, scrutinizing of studies, but also data that she collected herself, including interviews with women such as the Baroness Hale, Mary Beard, and it even features a quote from our very own Dame Manoush Safak. Um, this evening, uh, mary is going to tell us all about it, so I won't spoil the story. Um, and I'm going to start with um, asking mary or should I say M.A., I'd ask you to start with the reason why you contemplated being named as M.A. on the cover of this book, rather than Marianne.
1: Well, thanks very much, Grace. Uh, the reason I did is that men are four times more likely to read a book by man and by a woman, whereas women read roughly 50-50 books by men and by women. And so in the sort of JK Rowling or George Eliot uh, tradition, I thought if I disguise my gender on the cover, I might actually persuade more men to read this book. And I particularly want men to read this book. Of course, I want women to read it. And in fact, I hope it will be very useful for them in giving them all sorts of ammunition. Uh, but I don't think the world will change unless men read it too. And men are reluctant to read books by women. And this is actually Part of the argument in the book. So it would be quite meta, I thought, to call myself MA Seacart rather than Marianne. And my friends call me MA anyway.
0: Do you know anything yet about the gender split of the people who are reading The Authority Gap?
1: I don't. I've noticed in live events, the few I've been able to do so far, the audience is usually about three quarters women and a quarter men. And that's part of the problem because men actually need to join this conversation. It's very important that both genders join this conversation.
0: So we've made a lot of progress on gender equality and, you know, you don't have to convince me that we need a final gender convergence. We still have pay gap, you know, pay and promotion gaps and the progress is glacial. Can you comment on the evidence that underlines the clear need for the book for the people who might say, actually, women are doing incredibly well?
1: Well, there are, thank goodness, more women being promoted to visible high level jobs than they used to be. And often it's their jobs that have always been held by a man. And at last we have a a woman in them. And that's fantastic. But if you actually look at most women's everyday experience, so they're much, they are um, less likely to be hired in the first place than men. They are promoted more slowly than men. 70% of men will evaluate a man more highly than a woman for achieving exactly the same goals. So we have nothing like a true meritocracy here. And the reason I'm, I'm arguing in this book is that we still don't take women quite as seriously as men. So we assume, for instance, that a man knows what he's talking about until he proves otherwise. Well, for a woman, it's all too often the other way around. And as a result, women's expertise tends to be challenged more. Their ability tends to be underestimated. They're more likely to have their views ignored uh, they're, they're more likely to be interrupted to be spoken over at meetings and all these all this sort of behavior is a manifestation of the authority gap and i think the authority gap is the mother of all gender gaps because if we don't take women as seriously as men if we assume that they're incompetent until they prove otherwise then we're going to hire them less readily promote them less often and pay them less than men
0: it's funny, when you, was, when you were speaking, I was imagining being in the, in the shake theatre at the NSC, and I could imagine the women in the audience nodding along when you talked about being not being taken seriously, you know, being talked over. Um, one thing that I loved about your book, so the, the work that I do really links gender equality as being good for business, but you go a step what, further in the book and you talk about the benefits for men in terms of their personal lives and also in terms of society as a whole. Can you talk a bit about the evidence base?
1: Yes. Well, for, I, I, this was actually one of the most cheering things I discovered when I was researching this book, because I'd started off thinking, well, maybe men have got to be quite altruistic to allow women more power in society. You know, the, uh, as you, it's very similar to race, for instance. You know, I used to go on anti-racism and anti-apartheid marches, even though I'm white. Uh, but actually, no, it's very much in men's interest, too. And you would think that gender equality was like a seesaw in which if one side rises, the other side falls. But there's a lot of evidence to show it's actually a positive sum game, not a a zero sum game. So, for instance, in countries that are more gender equal and U.S. states that are more gender equal and also in relationships that are more gender equal, where the the, if in a straight relationship, at least, where the, the, the man and the woman share the unpaid work more equally, share the childcare more equally, not only are the women happier and healthier, which you might well expect, and the children happier and healthier, and they do better at school, they have fewer behavioural difficulties, uh, less like, the boys are less likely to be violent as teenagers, but the men are also happier and healthier. So they are twice as likely to say that they're satisfied with their life. This is, this is all academic research, by the way, it's not anecdotal. Twice as likely to say they're satisfied with their life, they're half as likely to be depressed much likely to get much less likely to get divorced they drink less on average they smoke less they take fewer drugs they sleep better at night and this is a clincher i think and this is academic research which which underpins this they get more frequent and better sex <laughs> So what's not to like guys join the club you will be much happier as a result Maybe and then, that, that's not, the op-ed you should have wrote Maryanne that would have
0: that would have got the men to buy the book <laughs>
1: And then, of course, you know, if we are not using women's talents as much as as we should, then, you know, businesses are going to make less money if they haven't got, uh, you know, so many talented women at the top. And we all know that more diverse workforces and and groups make better decisions. Um, female asset managers, on average, tend to make more money than male ones. Venture capitalists, make, sorry, entrepreneurs make more money. You know, so the economy is really losing out as a result. Even the planet is losing out because In parliaments that have more women, they tend to pass more climate change friendly policies. So there are all sorts of reasons why more gender equal, relationships, businesses, organizations, and even parliaments produce better results.
0: So when we look at that, I mean, the the, the data is very, very convincing. So why do you think that the individual men continue to see women as less than themselves?
1: because of the way that they've been brought up and because of the world in which they've been brought up. So I think one of the saddest pieces of research I came across showed that if you ask parents to estimate their children's IQ, they will estimate their sons on average at 115, which in itself is pretty funny because the average ought to come out at 100, right, for an IQ. Uh, So their sons at 115 and their daughters at only 107. Now, statistically, that is an enormous difference of Eight points of IQ. And this is true even though girls tend to develop faster than boys and they have a bigger vocabulary than boys at an earlier age and they outperform boys at every single academic level from nursery all the way up to PhD. And yet their parents think that the sons are cleverer than the daughters. And therefore, boys are much more likely to grow up thinking that they are cleverer than girls. And it's no surprise, perhaps, that adult men on average say their IQ is 110 and adult women say it's only 105. But we all know that, you know, apart from at the very, very ends of the IQ distribution, men's and women's IQs are identical. And then of course, they look at the world outside uh, in which men are still mainly in charge. You know, 94 out of the 100 top companies in this country are run by men. Um, men make up to, uh, three men for every woman in the cabinet. You know, every, every echelon of society, men are more likely to have authority than women.
0: I think one of the great points that you make in The Authority Gap is the perceptions that we have of women aren't just held by men. They're held by women about other women as well. So these are kind of societal norms. And if you're a woman and you're standing in front of a woman, you're also likely to be taken less seriously.
1: Yeah, I'm sorry to say this is the case uh, that we all harbour unconscious bias, however liberal or intelligent or indeed female uh, we are we're likely to have unconscious bias against women, even if we're a woman. And that's because as I say, we've all grown up in this world in which uh, there are many more men than women in authority. And therefore we're much more ready to associate male with authority. We have probably on average grown up in families in which our, hus- uh, sorry, our father uh, worked more than our mother, probably earned more than our mother, possibly had more authority in the house than our mother. And so it takes a long time to, I mean, you can't actually get rid of the unconscious bias. It's called unconscious for a reason. But we can at least notice when it manifests itself and say to ourselves, no, you know, don't assume this woman doesn't know very much. Don't assume when you're walking up to a man and a woman standing together that he's going to be more interesting than she is. You know, we have to correct for this unconscious, sneaky bias that creeps into to our brains.
0: You even see it in restaurants, Marianne. Twice I've been in restaurants recently where the meal that was healthier and vegan was passed to me instead of the man that I was with automatically. And both cases, it was actually wrong, automatically assuming that I would be the one who's eating, who's, who's eating the, healthier, the healthier meal. So even- I've, I've had food that food. as
1: well. I've often ordered steak and chips and, my, and the guy I've been with has ordered fish and they always get it wrong.
0: <laughs> it's, it's, it's so weird to see it kind of manifest in these very, very small things. And then you wonder what it actually does for the big outcomes that we care about.
1: Yeah, Absolutely.
0: One, one, one story that I hadn't heard about was of Ben and Joan, the two professors in Stanford who transitioned gender in different directions. And I think it actually gave a really important message for people who mightn't have heard it either. Would you be able to recount it for us?
1: Of course. So I think this is some of the best proof of the existence of the authority gap, because generally, if you're a woman and say your male colleague gets promoted and you don't and you think sexism is at play, but it's terribly hard to prove because maybe he's just better than you are. But if you can correct for every other variable and isolate the one that matters, which is gender, then you can be absolutely sure that it was gender that played a part. And the way you do this is to look at people who've lived both as a man and as a woman and see whether they've been treated differently because after all, they're exactly the same person with the same intelligence, ability, experience, personality, body of work. And if after they transitioned, they're treated very differently, I think that's very good evidence. So the story I want to tell is about these two Stanford professors, Ben Barres and Joan Roughgarden, who each transitioned in opposite directions by coincidence at the same time. Ben Barres, neuroscientist said, "'I've had the thought a million times I'm just taken more seriously now. He said, my work is taken more seriously. The same damned work, as he put it, is taken more seriously now. He said, people who don't know I'm transgendered treat me with so much more respect. And I can even finish a sentence without being interrupted by (laughs) a man. Someone was overheard who didn't know his history saying at the back of one of his seminars, oh, Ben Barrows gave such a great seminar today, but then his work's so much better than his sister's. Are you? Himself. (laughs) Uh, Joan Roughgarden, meanwhile, an evolutionary biologist, transitioned to live as a woman. And before transitioning, Joan had been on the University Senate Committee. Everything she said was just taken as read. Uh, She said her voice was just so much more powerful then, and her work was taken seriously. After she transitioned, She found it much harder to apply for for grants or at least to get grants that she applied for. She lost her seat on the university Senate committee and her work. And she personally were attacked in ways that had never happened to her when she was living as a man. So people would say to her, you obviously haven't read the literature. you don't understand the statistics. She said that never happened to me before. And she said people interrupted her, patronised her, talked over her at meetings and she said to start with, I thought, well, if I'm going to be a woman, I'm darn well going to be discriminated against in the same way as other women are. And she said, well, the novelty of that has worn off, I can tell you. And her conclusion was men are assumed to be competent until proven otherwise, and women are assumed to be incompetent until proven otherwise. And actually much bigger studies by sociologists of trans men and trans women have found very similar results, particularly trans men, say they are respected so much more after they transition life becomes so much easier for them at work they get promoted more quickly they get away with more it's just much easier being a man than a woman basically
0: it's strange because when i read the authority gap it felt that it was probably easier for men to be their more authentic selves in work as compared to women
1: so much so and this is down to the stereotypes the sneaky very old-fashioned little stereotypes that we all seem to nurture in the darkest recesses of our brains that tell us that women have to be warm and gentle and communal and likable and unthreatening, unself-promoting, uncompetitive and unassuming. Now, these character traits don't get you anywhere at work, okay? Mm -hmm. So if you want to succeed at work and if you want to be taken seriously, you have to be confident and assertive and you have to show leadership traits. And these are traditionally male characteristics, male stereotypes. So a man can have these characteristics as which sociologists or social psychologists call agentic traits and be authentic to himself and advance at work very easily. But when a woman shows these agentic traits alongside the feminine ones or maybe instead of the feminine ones, people recoil. They find it very difficult, women as well as men. They feel uncomfortable. There's something sort of grating and incongruous, as social psychologists call it, about a woman showing traditionally masculine traits. And so they start to use adjectives about her such as abrasive or strident or aggressive or overbearing or bossy. I could go on, bitchy, ball breaking even. And these are adjectives that are never used of men. And they do it because There's just something wrong, they feel, about a woman behaving in a traditionally male way. And as a result, they quite often find these women unlikable. Now, you might say, well, what's the problem? We should just grow a thicker skin if if people don't like us, particularly men. Uh, So what? The trouble is that for women, likability at work is much more important than it is for men, particularly when it comes to male hirers or promoters they're much more likely to hire or promote a woman they find likable. With men on the whole, it's down to competence and achievements and potential. For women, likability is much more important. So it's incredibly hard for women to get this right, because if they're not confident and assertive enough, they'll be disrespected. But if they are confident and assertive enough, they're quite likely to be disliked and therefore also not hired or promoted. So this is the double bind that women find themselves in. When
0: I read that... And I did, I, it felt right to me. It felt, it felt intuitive. But it just sounded exhausting in order to walk that tightrope, to be very honest. So let's imagine that you're not naturally warm and kind. And I think even if you actually are warm and kind, you might get some reactance to somebody telling you that you need to be too warm and kind. I wondered, how much productivity are we losing by not allowing women be their authentic selves at work, by forcing them into a stereotype that, that
1: really clearly is outdated? I, I think an enormous amount. So what happens is that the ones who aren't prepared to put on this carapace of warmth in order to be, uh, in order to be accepted, mainly by men, don't get hired, don't get promoted. And so we're losing out on those talents. And those who do manage to succeed, you know, to wear this carapace successfully aren't being their authentic selves and therefore are having to put a huge amount of emotional labor really into acting, uh, in order to get where they are. And I mean, women, they do start to do this sort of instinctively, the the successful ones. And so women, for instance, will read a room very carefully to see uh, whether they are thought to be talking too much. Now, you often hear a woman say, oh God, did I talk too much? Don't often hear a man say that. And the reason is that women who are deemed to talk too much are thought to be less competent, less suited to leadership. This is what research studies show. Whereas men who talk too much are seen as more competent and more suited to leadership but we're often criticized too for not contributing enough at meetings. And it's true that on average, women do talk less in public settings than men do, but that's because they can see the backlash happening if they talk more. And actually we will perceive a woman to have dominated a conversation if she only talks for an equal amount of time to the men in the room. And therefore talking too much actually means talking as much as her male colleagues. (laughs) So, again, we're walking this really difficult tightrope between talking enough to be taken seriously and not talking so much that people would disapprove.
0: And that meta-analysis is really fascinating that even though we believe that women and girls talk more than men, actually, when you look at the meetings and you audit the meetings, men, I think it's two and a half times in a a meta-analysis, speak more than women. So that even that false perception in itself feels to go in the direction about what you're saying.
1: Absolutely. I mean, if you wire up women and men for a whole day and count the number of words they've used, it's almost exactly the same. But in public settings, as you say, men talk much more than women. And they tend to do what I call conversational, not all men, by the way, some men tend to do what I call conversational man spreading. They just take up a disproportionate amount of space. You probably had the sort of conversation with a man where he just bangs on and on and on about himself and his views. And you simply can't get a word in edgeways. I tell the story in the, in the book about a female vice chancellor of a university. So very, very, very senior woman uh, who goes for dinner at an Oxford college and is sat next to the head of the college, the president or the warden or whatever. And he talks entirely about himself for the whole of the first course, for the whole of the second course, doesn't ask her a single question, has no idea what she does. And at the end of the second course, he says, well, that's enough about me and turns to the woman on his other side. <laughs> <laughs> as to who she is or what she thinks or whether she has anything interesting to <laughs> say at all. <laughs> but actually research shows that in meetings, um, women have to make up, either women have to make up 80% or more of a meeting for them to talk a proportionate amount of time. Or if you change the rule of the, of the, of the decision-making so that decisions are made by unanimity, like in jury service, rather than by majority decision-making, then also women will talk for a proportionate amount of time, I guess, because they then think, well, my view has to be heard because I have to agree with the consensus in order for a decision to be taken.
0: It's interesting because I think when I when I when I read that first, I thought to myself, well, we will probably want women to speak more. And I spent a lot of time trying to curb groupthink in meetings in corporate companies and one of the the, if if you if you ordered a meeting one of the big conclusions often is that the decision maker or the person who has power or the alpha male for want of a better word needs to say less so I'm wondering if we actually ran meetings by the way that women would naturally run them with the amount of words that they actually use in meetings whether we'd actually be better off.
1: Well I think uh, yeah I mean I think Research does suggest that women listen more to each other, that they are on receive as well as transmit more on average than men are, and they're more collaborative in their decision making, and they speak more succinctly. So uh, I I think there's one piece of research that says that the IQ of a group rises the more women are in it, not necessarily because the women are more intelligent, but because they collaborate more, listen to each other more, and therefore end up doing better decision making.
0: So when I was thinking about that, one of the things that got me thinking about was um, cultures in companies. So um, when you talked about Ben and Joan, um, on, on Thursday evening here for the LSE, um, I interviewed um, Antonia Belcher, who transitioned um, in, in, in her 40s and was in construction um, and never suffered any pay gap, um, did suffer a, a, not a particularly nice environment, and she, en- she ended up leaving. And I think about the pay gap in construction between men and women, and it's really, really low because there's so few women in it. And I think a lot of what you talk about really manifests itself where you get kind of tipping with women. So it's 30 percent plus. We see these kind of differences where men are talking over women. And I wonder, is it some sort of reactance to women entering the industry? Or do you think perhaps that it's, it's almost a power struggle with who actually gets to define the culture?
1: It, I mean, this is a hard one to measure, isn't it? And you're just asking me for my hunch rather than any, any evidence. I I'm, intu-
0: I, I'm interested because I think a lot of times when we have more women in organisations, it does change culture. We can yeah. see that. And I'm wondering if some of what your, the findings in the book really are that politics at play. So we, we're, we're seeing culture change in favour maybe of a more collaborative environment, for example. And there are people who are pushing back against
1: that. Yeah, um, and it is interesting. For instance, there is evidence to suggest that um, junior men are more likely to interrupt senior women. And I suspect that is because they, there is something that makes them feel uncomfortable about having a woman in authority over them. And therefore they sort of feel they have to fight back. So for instance, there's an extraordinary study uh, of US Supreme court proceedings and you don't get much more authoritative than than the US Supreme court, but women make up a third of the justices there but suffer two thirds of all interruptions. So in other words, they are four times more likely to be interrupted than their male colleagues, 96 percent of the time by male advocates or justices. Now, the advocates are actually pleading in front of them and are, so in, therefore in some you know, are, are beholden to them. And you would think they would be sensible enough not to interrupt the woman who is actually going to be taking the decision. But they just can't resist somehow.
0: One thing that I really liked about the authority gap is that it speaks about compound interest. So I, I recently wrote about the idea of the mediocre manager who um, was identified by an extraordinary amount of women in financial and professional services who tends to give opportunities to people like them So kind of replicate themselves. And it really reminded me of actually compound interest. And I think your, your, your theory of compound interest goes even further to explain pay and promotion gaps. Can you elaborate on that?
1: Yeah, so, so what I say is that Each instance of the authority gap coming into play often feels quite minor and marginal. So, you know, you make a point at a meeting and no one takes any notice and then a man makes it 10 minutes later and and it's treated like the second coming. You know, we're all used to this as women. Each instance feels small, but I think they roll up over the course of a lifetime like compound interest to create this huge gap in opportunity and achievement between women and men, because each time this is happening, A, it's denting your confidence as a woman, but B, it means that other people around you are taking you less seriously and are thinking that the man who actually has achieved the same goals as you is better than you. And all these things just add up. So, yeah, I, 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 think, I think it's a very good explanation for the big gap in pay and seniority between women and men. So it feels
0: then that some of the things that, we sh- that you talk about in your book, so voice within meetings, opportunities to be stretched... We should audit them. So it might actually be difficult to audit them, but auditing them might actually shed some light much earlier on in the pipeline than when we're actually looking at the top of the organisations and saying,
1: where are the women gone? Absolutely. So, yeah, what opportunities are you giving women uh, towards the beginning and in the middle of their careers? You know, there's a lot of evidence to show that in companies, for instance, women are quite often shunted off to HR or marketing. And then when it comes to bigger promotions, they say, well, you've never run a profit centre. Well, you've never been given a chance to run a profit centre. These are the sort of things that the, that managers ought to be looking at. And certainly chairs of meetings, I think, should be far more sensitive to whether women are being overlooked or talked over, interrupted, ignored you know, uh, suppose you make a point and no one takes any notice, you know, when a man makes the same point 10 minutes later, the chair should say, oh, I'm so glad you agree with what Grace said earlier. (laughs) Or if you get interrupted, the chair should say, oh, hang on a minute, I really want to hear what Grace was trying to say. You know, we need allies, we need people to be aware of this problem. Uh, And then with any luck, the the malefactors will start to realise that they can't get away with it quite so easily. There is actually fascinating evidence of this phenomenon I've talked about, about women making a point and not being able to influence a meeting in the way that men can. Uh, And it was a study done. Researchers put together a mixed sex group of students to supposedly to discuss a child custody case. And they deliberately chose this subject because it's actually quite female stereotyped. It's not, you know, quantum mechanics or something. And they were given lots of information about the family concerned a few individual members were given a particular piece of information that the rest of the group didn't have. And when that piece of information was introduced by a man, it was six times more likely to be used in the group's deliberations than when it was introduced by a woman. Six times more. And that just shows how much harder women have to struggle to influence a decision than men. And so we often beat ourselves up and think, well, I made that and No one took any notice. Maybe I wasn't articulate enough. Maybe I wasn't confident enough. No, you were simply too female.
0: Can you say something about mistakes? So, you know, there's often this expression that men fail up and this comes true as well in in the authority gap. So we talked about opportunities and that men tend to get many more opportunities as compared to women. But then when both get opportunities, there seems to be evidence that if a woman makes mistakes, it hurts her much more than as compared to a man.
1: Yes, I think women get one chance generally yeah. and and if they bog it, <laughs> that's that. <laughs> Men are allowed to make mistakes, fail, fail and fail again um, and, and tend to be given more chances and also women are more likely to be appointed to really difficult jobs the so-called glass cliff you know when a company's really in trouble that's when a woman tends to get appointed and it may be that she accepts because she knows she's not going to be offered the successful company so her only hope is to take over the failing one and 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 hope that she can turn it around and some of them do manage to but yeah it's an extra tax on women this
0: I mean, I have to say the the glass cliff is a real pain because it makes it very hard to find concrete evidence that women running companies are more effective than men. It looks neutral. But if you take into account the bad starting point and and the lead boots, I'm convinced it's there. Um, Before we go to questions, and please, uh, anyone who is in the audience, if you have questions, do put them in. I'm going to be coming to them in a second. I want to ask you what type of advice you would give to a woman who is ambitious, Who's talented and perhaps experiencing exclusion in the organisation because she is not warm enough? Maybe she's too straight shooting.
1: Uh, put a, bo- a copy of my book in your desk, story. <laughs> 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 top drawer, perhaps. <laughs> uh, I mean, the awful thing is, I wish the world weren't like this, but the world being what it is, we do have to just ladle warmth, you know, onto whatever we do if we want to be taken seriously. And be confident, be assertive and be competent. And I would prefer a world in which we didn't have to do this. But until people are more aware of their biases and more aware aware of the role that stereotypes play in their thinking, I'm afraid that's just what we have to do, however inauthentic it feels. And we probably do have to smile more. We do have to crack more jokes. We do have to be more emotionally intelligent and aware of the reactions of the men around us. It's terrible, but I mean, if I were to say to her, no, 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 just carry on being your authentic self, she'll probably suffer. And I don't want to be responsible for her being punished for this.
0: It's interesting. So we've done. um, um, Myself, my colleague um, Erica Broadnock are working on a project at the moment, Um, and I I did a similar project with women in banking and finance. And one thing to come true is that women actually leave for this reason. So they leave to go and you know start up companies and to become entrepreneurs. So it it does make me shudder about what it actually does to the talent stream for people who can't, you know, kind of ladle on the warmth in the way that you describe.
1: Yeah, and you know, then we're told, oh well, women just don't want the top jobs in these companies. You know, And why do we have this attrition? We, you know, we're trying to get them into the pipeline and they all just leave. Well, maybe look at the culture in your organisation first before blaming the women.
0: Yeah, more opportunities and being less critical of mistakes. I think if we got those two things right... You would see women staying because there isn't a shortage of ambitious women I think there's a shortage of where they can actually put their put their ambitions um but let me move to some questions so let's start with um Odessa Hamilton Odessa Hamilton works with me in the inclusion initiative and she's also a PhD student over at UCL Odessa are you there
1: I am indeed Hi. Hi. Um, So hello, Marianne. Uh, First, before I even jump into my question, I must say that much of what you revealed here today, women will have invariably experienced, but perhaps couldn't pinpoint or articulate in a seamless way that you have here today. So I just wanted to take the time to thank you um, for your insights and expertise. Um, But to my question, um, in your book, you speak to the possibility of addressing the authority gap in one generation by targeting perceptions that stem from social conditioning in youth. So that being said, would you say it's hopeless for older populations? No, there's a lot we can do in older populations too. We just, we all need to recognise that we have these biases and we're very reluctant to do that. So we need to recognise we have them. I have this bias. You know, I was sometimes... I don't know, I'll hear, say, a young woman being interviewed on the radio, maybe her voice is quite high and she sounds a bit childish in the way that men can't because their voices break. And I'll instinctively think, oh, I wonder if she knows what she's talking about. And then I'll say, no, stop. <laughs> Listen to the content of what she's saying and don't judge her by the pitch of her voice. So, you know, you can train yourself in that way to notice when you're having these um, these thoughts and when, when you're doing, you know, when you're, when you're exhibiting authority gap type behavior and you can learn to stop it, just as you can learn to stop slumping at your desk, you know, it just takes a bit of practice. So we, so there is hope for, you know, um, people of your age, people of my age, but only if, pe- if other people want to change. And I, I just really wish they would. <laughs> By the way, I haven't actually had a chance to mention the intersectional nature of the authority gap which is, you know, so it is much wider, unfortunately, uh, for women of colour than for white women. And it's much wider for disabled women than for able bodied women. And it's much wider for working class women than for middle class women. And so everything I've I've talked about applies to all women, but with compound interest, actually, if uh, if women aren't white or if they're not middle class or if they're not able bodied. And so this is something we've really got to tackle as well. Thank you
0: so much, Odessa. I'm looking forward to talking to you tomorrow, I think. See you soon. Um, Bonnie, Bonnie Chung, who is incoming to LSE on the MSc Behavioural Science, which I was a director of. Bonnie, how are you? Good, how are you? Good, nice to see you. Yeah, of course. Um, hello, Marianne. I just wanted to echo Dessa's comments earlier as well. While I was reading the book, there were certainly many moments where I had to put down the book and think for a second because I was just hit by memories of how I internalized quite a lot of the standards you touched upon. And so that was really a big shock. having those memories pop up and thought, wow, like this is fantastic. So perhaps one of the recommendations for older generations to start embarking on this journey is to buy your book. <laughs> um, but my question is related to your recommendations on closing the authority gap. So in the last chapter, you touch upon traditional media outlets due to their ability on influencing our perceptions. So I'm curious to hear if you have any recommendations for social media platforms, you know, since Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, so on, they really form, um, they really Impact our perceptions
1: and biases as well. Uh, well, I wrote a very distressing chapter about the backlash that women suffer as a result of gaining more authority. And women are 27 times more likely to be abused online than men. Mm-hmm. 20 to that figure, 27 times. Uh, and I think social media platforms could do a lot more on that. Uh, you know, they're, they're trying to tackle racism, but I don't think they do nearly mm-hmm. enough on misogyny. Um, and, and I, I, know there are other problems, you know, it can be, there are other problems with this, but I think that if social media users had to prove their identity and couldn't be anonymous, I think life online will be a lot easier for women. It's much harder to make rape threats if your account is easily traced back to you. Um, but I think also another thing I would like is for instance, for the algorithms on say Twitter, uh, or Instagram, but probably even more so on Twitter to suggest women that men could follow. So women follow roughly equal numbers of men and women on Twitter. Men follow much more men than women on Twitter. So they're not even allowing us into their newsfeed. And how can they decide whether what we think or say is interesting or authoritative if they're not even seeing it in the first place? And they're also much more likely to comment on or retweet uh, tweets by men than by women. And given that you know, comments and retweets are the currency of Twitter, that means that we are just poorer as a result. So I think social media companies could actually address their algorithms too.
0: Yeah, no, that's fantastic. Thank you. Thanks, Bonnie. And if you're in the audience, um, do tweet and retweet Marianne and I tonight um, to kind of start a, a more positive trend. But, but, that, but that evidence, I hadn't really thought about it. But if you look at any of the gentlemen that I know, again, the majority of the people that they're actually following do tend to be of the same gender, which is, which is, really, which is really, really
1: depressing. Um, So So this is I was just going to say something that men can really easily remedy um, because they're probably not doing it consciously. But just have a look at who you follow on Twitter and try and redress the balance if it's many more men than women.
0: And I I think the the approach that it's unconscious is quite freeing, isn't it? Because if you recognize it in yourself, it's really easy to fix. Um, well don't um, and don't go now go af- go after the talk um we have a question from um Joanna Solomon, PhD of uh, law student how much of this is an Anglo-American issue oh, I was going to ask this. this is a good question are there comparable studies from other advanced industrial societies with different cultures example Israel and the Nordic countries
1: yes uh so even in Israel there was a study about uh, how teachers uh expectations of people's mathematical abilities uh, follow them all the way through their careers and that the teachers themselves are biased. So teachers expect the girls to be less good at maths than the boys. And the, and, and, and this is very heavily correlated with how the girls do in their careers. Um, most, sorry, not most, a lot of the studies, probably about half the studies are American because uh, on the whole American academics seem to be more interested in, in, in these sorts of issues than other countries. But I have, I do cite studies from all over the world. Uh, but, but, I, but I concentrated mainly on developed countries because, you know, we all know that in Pakistan, say, you know, it's overtly incredibly sexist or in Saudi Arabia. Uh, but in countries like the UK and the US, a lot of people, well, a lot of men think we've solved the problem already. And what I'm trying to point out is we really haven't. And actually, people, even in I, I've talked to quite a lot of people in Denmark, which is one of the most gender equal societies and women there still really complain about instances of the authority gap.
0: Um, how do we affect change collaboratively with men rather than a feeling like our sole responsibility? And that's from Lorna.
1: We need men as allies. We really do. And as I said earlier, it's in men's interest, too. So it's not that big an ask. But what we really need is for men to speak out on our behalf at meetings if we're being you know, patronised or interrupted or ignored. We need men as sponsors and mentors in organisations. The trouble is that men suffer not just from gender bias, which we all do, but also from affinity bias. So that means that they're much more likely to help and encourage people like themselves. So, you know, they, if suppose they're a senior manager and they spot a man 20 years younger who reminds them of themselves when they were younger, that's the sort of person they want. To, they're going to want to give a leg up to. So I'd like to say to them, just switch for once and choose a woman instead. To sponsor and mentor,
0: and I think this is a really important point because a lot of the gaps that you find between men and women in the in the in the book can be explained by discrimination in one direction that's unconscious, but equally by favoritism. So it could just be that men are neutral towards women, but actually favour people people like themselves. But the outcomes are the same, yeah. um, and it's probably actually harder to tackle favoritism. In honesty um it, to kind of think about legislation so we have a question on oh this is a good one so how would you respond to Dr Jordan Peterson's claim that men and women cannot ever be equal and it is truly rooted on the evolutionary makeup of these sexes which implies that certain things or jobs are naturally suited for one sex more than another
1: well I just don't believe that to be true uh I mean there are, if everything were evolutionarily determined then it would, the differences, the sex differences would be true in um, at all times and in all countries, because it would just be a basic part of our uh, genetic makeup. But there are societies in which women are in charge, and they exhibit very different characteristics to patriarchal societies. So one great study looked at competitiveness. I bet Jordan Peterson would say men are just an nat- more competitive than women and that's because they were chasing mammoths while women were just picking berries or you know they were competing for mates in a way that women didn't have to something like that so these researchers looked at the kazi society in india which is matrilineal and the maasai society in tanzania which is patriarchal and they discovered that not only are kazi women more competitive than kazi men they're even more competitive than maasai men (laughs) So if this were evolution really determined, that simply wouldn't be the case. I, I do believe it's socially conditioned.
0: This is a really great study, by the way. So it's Yuri and John List in Econometrica, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and it's a really, really rigorous, rigorous piece of work. But it reminds me of narratives that that study. So if you grow up being told that you're not meant to compete, you mm-hmm. internalize that. And then I meet you at 20, 30, 40, 50 years of age, and you don't have that trait. Whereas obviously the women... In, in that study, they were running things. So, so from the very beginning, they were given the, the permission, if you like, to be competitive.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've actually, despite being female, I've always been very competitive, probably because I was very close in age to my older brother and we were very competitive with each other. I don't know, maybe that's why. And I actually say in the book, actually, you know, not all women are less competitive than men. I'm actually pretty competitive. And then I said in brackets, I wonder if that made you feel a bit uncomfortable reading that. And several people have said it did, because the idea of a woman admitting that she's competitive, you know, it goes against our stereotypes. And people
0: get this as feedback in annual reviews. You know, you you need to be less competitive much more often if you're a woman as compared to a man. And actually doing those text analysis is really, really fascinating. The different type of language that we use in describing the alpha males, where being competitive is seen as a positive trait, as compared to the women who are in the same organisation.
1: Yeah, there was a fascinating study done of women in tech companies, women and men in tech companies, of their evaluations. And women are much more likely to be criticised for being assertive or aggressive than men. And when the word was used of men, it was usually that they weren't assertive or aggressive enough.
0: (laughs) But it tells you the type of conditioning that we have as well about what a leader actually looks like. So for the quietly confident men as well, they're probably experiencing some of the backlash that the women... we're talking about tonight
1: yeah and and, you know if we just if we just tried to get rid of these stereotypes which are based on incredibly anachronistic um assumptions then actually men would be much better off as well as women because they could be their more authentic selves
0: so we have a question from anna who is one of our executive behavioral um, science students hi anna Um, what can be done to reduce agentic traits at workplaces will we always have to assume that to be successful at work you need to possess them Or maybe the value of inclusion lies in having a gentler conversation about what success means.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I completely agree with that. And that's what we all ought to aim for in the longer term. And actually, I do think we're getting there. I think um, if you look at um, if you look at studies of leadership, uh, most academics now understand that what's called transformational leadership is 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 the most successful form of leadership. And that is on the whole being more collaborative, being more democratic taking more care to engage your employees and this is actually a form of leadership that women tend to be better at than men and in fact men who display this are often praised for, for, for being more successful leaders so I think we're getting there very slowly but we are getting there.
0: Do you think Marianne so, so a lot of the evidence coming out of kind of job flow data and how we actually price um, jobs suggests that empathy being humble, being collaborative, that these are all traits that are needed for the future of work. So the leader is shifting, if you like, from being command and control to being more collaborative. Do you think that women will naturally make progress because of those shifts? Or do you think that some of the, I'm going to call it office politics, and that's probably the wrong way to label it, but some of the office politics that you bring up in the authority gap will push out the
1: gains. Uh, It's still a hunch. I think there is a danger of that because if women were judged entirely on their merits, then yes, of course, they would would really benefit from that. But the mistake that we make in judging employees is that we mistake confidence for competence. And so often men are more competent, sorry, not, (laughs) men are more confident, (laughs) Freudian slip there, uh, than women. Uh, For all the reasons I've mentioned, you know, if if you're up against the authority gap in every day of your working life, that will dent your confidence day after day. If your parents think you're less clever than your brother, that will dent your confidence. And also boys are encouraged to be confident and girls on the whole are encouraged to be self-deprecating and to, you know, underestimate their abilities. Um, So men on the whole are more confident than women. It doesn't make them more competent, though. But we're very bad. You know, we, we tend to mistake the two. And as a result, we will. You know promote the, uh, the the sort of blustering confident blagging man over the actually quietly much more competent woman and I think that we've got to change we've got to we've got to look very carefully at our assumptions when we evaluate and interview people also to understand that we make it so much harder for women to get the right to get it right when it comes to confidence because as I said earlier you know if they're not confident enough we say they're not assertive enough they're not good enough they they can't make the great but if they're as confident as the men quite often they get penalised for it and disliked
0: and what you're saying so so we talked about the kind of advice that you might give to one person who's actually being excluded and having a hard time but if you take it to the firm level what you've said there really kind of points me in the direction that advocates kind of advocation is a really important role for senior management and really paying attention to who they're advocating for because if we don't want women speaking up for themselves if we don't want women to seem overly confident and there's this backlash effect it's really important that other people are advocating for them and and improving their visibility.
1: Yeah, very much so, because men are allowed to self-promote and A, we believe them and B, we think it's perfectly acceptable and natural. Women are not allowed to self-promote. So studies show that women who do self-promote are seen as unlikable and and (laughs) unhirable So this is really hard because if you're going up for a job and, you know, you, you want to tell them all about your ability and your achievements, uh, you, again, have this double bind uh, that if, if if you're genuinely honest and say, well, this is what I'm good at and this is what I've achieved. The danger is that the person sitting on the other side of the table will say, oh, I don't like her. She's a bit boastful. Mm-hmm. Whereas a man can easily do that and get away with it. So until we can change our biases yes we need other people to advocate for us and say she's really good (laughs) look at her achievements uh, in order for them to be recognized
0: aileen is asking if there's a relationship between exhaustion burn down or burnout and the authority gap
1: uh well there's a big relationship between exhaustion burnout and being female (laughs) because we do 60% more unpaid work on average than if we have male partners than them Uh, so that's a big problem. Yes. And so, you know, if if you add to that, the emotional labor of having to, you know, be incredibly warm and sometimes inauthentic in order to be taken seriously at work, yeah, you are likely to get pretty exhausted and burnt out. And this is a burden that men simply don't have to bear.
0: So Paris, we, we've spoken about advocation. Paris will um, is asking, I was wondering if there have been successful interventions that you know of that make men and women's voice more equal in the workplace.
1: There is an app called Woman Interrupted, which judges how often <laughs> women are interrupted in meetings. And there are other apps that actually just measure speaking time and they can tell by the pitch of your voice, whether you're male or female. Uh, so that's quite handy, both of them. And, and some female chairs do actually use them. I don't know if any male chairs do not. None that, none that have talked to me and
0: I think even the saliency of being told that as a chair if you if you assume good intentions might get the chair to change how they actually behave in running the meeting
1: mm. I mean there's there is evidence to suggest that uh, after um, a talk or a seminar or whatever if the first questioner in a and a is female more women subsequently will ask questions and so if I'm chairing a QA, and I will always try and call a woman first for exactly that reason. There's another very good study of speaking time, uh, which um, asked students to give a talk and they gave them VR goggles in which what they saw was an audience and discreetly placed at the back of the room was a big portrait either of Hillary Clinton, Angela Merkel, Bill Clinton, or none at all. And when the picture was of Hillary Clinton or Angela Merkel, the female students talked 50% longer than when it was Bill Clinton or none at all. And as judged by the audience, they spoke more eloquently. So something that subliminal, that subliminal role model can make such a difference. I mean, let's at least plaster our walls with women. It didn't make any difference to the male students, by the way.
0: Oh, Jessica, who asked a question earlier, shared with me um, about Angela Merkel being asked questions about cooking and about her clothing. Yeah. Even, even when she was actually leading a country, which, which would never be asked of a man. It, it, that's horrendous.
1: I know. I, I interviewed, uh, I don't know, five or six former prime ministers and presidents, and they all complained about the attention paid to their looks, uh, which men just never had to deal with. And, you know, the men could be fat and balding and have dandruff and God knows what, <laughs> and they were just allowed to carry on being politicians. But no, the women, uh, it just gets endlessly picked over what they wear, how they do their hair handbags their shoes it is pathetic and actually in, in my chapter about the media I say you know one really simple thing would be that for journalists writing about women in the public eye just ask themselves every time would I say this about a man and if not delete yeah. that would make a big difference I think
0: I think I mean, I, the, the role of the media in this t- to to create changes is immense and that one small change I think could really could really tip our culture Carla is asking, and I think that you might have answered this already, but I'll let you decide how your analysis in your book changes for women of colour.
1: I think I have already answered it. And it is just a lot worse, I'm afraid. And of course, there are two added things. Sorry, I, I I will answer and I'll say some more because there are two added things. One is that the racial stereotypes often get overlaid onto gender stereotypes. So you get terrible things like, you know, the angry black woman or submissive Asian woman. Um, And and this compounds the problem, you know, so suppose a a black woman says, um, hang on a minute. I was speaking there. Could you not interrupt? Suddenly she'll be the angry, difficult black woman. It's bad enough if you're white, but it's even worse if you're black. Um, And what was the other thing I was going to say? So sorry. It's escaped my mind. I'll get it'll come back to me.
0: Carla is asking, can we document that the discrimination against women in early? Oh, go ahead.
1: So I just remembered. Uh, yes. Yeah, so if, if you're a woman of colour and you do succeed, quite often you are just written off as the diversity hire. And so even if you, you've been appointed on merit, people will think, oh, well, she's only got there because of the colour of her skin. That was the other thing I was going to say.
0: I think as well, when, there, when there's quotas, if, if you're hired, you do need sharp elbows because voice is diminished in mm. the C-suite. But I think having those people take the seats is really important you know so having people actually show up be role models and if they can have sharp elbows and, and god i hate to say it but have a thick skin because it makes it so much easier for the second for the third you yeah. know for for, for for the fourth i'm a real proponent of quotas but i do think the voice might get a bit diminished and having that right person in the seat is super important um carla is asking if a lot of what you're finding is to do with um mothers in early careers Rather than rather than being a woman per se, so if you contrast women who don't have children as compared to women who have children,
1: uh, I'm afraid it kicks in long before motherhood. But motherhood really compounds it. So you know, once you have a child, you're immediately deemed to be less competent and less committed to your to your work uh, than before. So that really compounds it, and the pay gap widens hugely once you have children. But it does start earlier than that, and that's why there's already a pay gap generally. When couples start to have children and that's why quite often, you know, much more often than if in a straight relationship, the man is earning more than the mother. And therefore it it makes sense for her to, you know, um, wind her career down a bit, work part time, whatever it is, because he's already earning more and he's already earning more because of the authority gap. And, you know, there are, there are studies done, of course, so, you know, psychologists often use students to do their studies. And so quite a lot of these studies have been done on students who are only what, 19, 20, 21, 22, whatever. There was a study done of biology students, for instance, and they were asked to nominate who was the best informed and smartest member of their class. And it was done throughout the course of a year. And the female biology students, on average, answered it very accurately. They did manage to pinpoint the best informed and smartest member of the class. The male ones disproportionately put forward other male students, even when the female ones were smarter and better informed. And this gap actually widened during the course of the year when they would had more chance to see their classmates in action. So these are 19, 20 year old young men uh, showing their gender bias. And, yeah. in
0: some, and in some of the most liberal universities as well as where these studies are done. So, you know, if you, if you if you if you take it out, you might expect the gap to get bigger rather than, rather than smaller. And yeah. um, Floris is asking, how can men of Generation Z be allies to women in the workplace and broader society without being punished for calling out antiquated behaviour of older men in power?
1: Oh, it's so tricky to call out the behaviour of, of, of more senior colleagues, isn't it? Uh... I think you should do it. I, I think you
0: should call it out. I I Mary Al will have a much more sensible answer to me, but I think you should call it out. I wish
1: you would. <laughs> actually, there is, there is an interesting study which shows that men are often scared of calling out sexist behaviour because they overestimate the sexism of other men, and that other men aren't actually, don't have quite such sexist attitudes as men assume, and therefore uh, might be more receptive to this sort of thing being called out. But, you know, I, th- I think just as we're not prepared to hear racist, you know, language in a room anymore, I don't think we should be prepared to hear sexist language either. And so, you know, if you're a man in a group with other men and they start dissing women or saying sexist things, I think just be brave and have moral courage and, and say so.
0: Anna is saying, what advice would you have for autistic women in the workplace in relation to the authority gap? So I'm guessing that the the, the authority gap compounds this is a, 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 a dimension of intersectionality. So what advice would you have?
1: Well, I'm not an expert on autism, but yes, I'm, it does definitely compound it. And of course, it's harder for you to have um, sort of instinctive emotional reactions. But you probably do spend a lot of your life putting on reactions that you know you're supposed to have, even if you don't already, you know, don't instinctively have them. Uh, and so in a way, perhaps forcing yourself to smile and and. Um, you know have this carapace of warmth might even be easier for you because you, you always have to act in order to fit in in a, in a way that um, neurotypical women have to do less or certainly neurotypical men have to do less but I, I, I you know I'm not an expert on this. So
0: the last question then I'm going to bundle two questions and you can answer them and anything else that you want to um, add that we haven't covered. So we've one question on role models, asking if there's any evidence on how role models can be effective in the workplace. And then we have a personal question from Shivani, um, who says, I use disclaimers and caveats in work. I struggle to combat this because I believe I know what I'm talking about and I need to present in that way more often. But I also believe it's important to talk about those caveats and disclaimers. How do I fight against the implications of fitting into a gender role, being seen as less confident, being outshone by a man who doesn't tackle nuances? While being authentic and doing my
1: job very well, so that is such a it's such a tricky question. That's such a tricky question. I mean, I think. Do, do, do you mean was it Siobhan, uh, Shivani? I, right. I,
0: I, I think Shivani is 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 trying to juggle being authentic um, and trying to placate somebody who who basically expects her to be a certain uh, behave in a certain way.
1: <laughs> it's it's just really difficult. I would love to live in a world in which we can all be authentic. Sadly, we can't be, or at least we can be, but then we won't get on. There is this trade-off, and you have to decide for yourself how much you are prepared to compromise. Um, if I think he, she was talking, Shivani was talking about disclaimers and that sort of thing. I think that's something we can shake off. We can stop apologising for being ourselves, and we can stop saying, "Well, I don't know much about this," but unless it's genuinely true, as with me and autism just now, um, I, don't do yourself down. I think I would I would advise women really don't do yourself down, because if you do, people will believe you. If you say, oh, I'm no good at maths in a way that, you know, girls are sort of trained to do. People will think you're no good at maths, even if you are. Um, So men are believed when they say they're better than they are. And women are believed when they say they're worse than they are. Men have to stop boasting and blagging. We have to start actually being accurate about our abilities and not doing them down. I'm sorry you're gonna to have to remind me of the question before that now
0: um it's on role models so oh, well, well, the importance of role models
1: yes. so much research has been done on this and they are unbelievably helpful i mean i talked about the, just the subliminal effect of seeing a female up on a wall and if you know that, that, that there was an amazing study done of women in stem uh of a certain age old enough to have watched the x-files when they were young and the x-files of course had this fantastic character scully who was a really competent and interesting female scientist. 63% of women in STEM of that generation said that they've been inspired to go into STEM subjects and industries because of watching Scully and the X-Files. And you think, if one TV show can have that effect on people's lives, you know, what can female role models all over the world do for us? An enormous amount is the answer.
0: Did you grasp that you were a role model in kind of a man's industry when you were writing for The Times all those years?
1: I think I yeah, I did, actually. Yeah. And in fact, I helped along with some other female journalists. I helped to set up an organisation called Women in Journalism. We were already senior in the industry, but we were quite unusual in order to help younger women coming up and, you know, give them all sorts of mentoring and advice. Yeah,
0: and I, and I think that's a great note, you know, to leave it on. I think for people who are struggling in work, finding a group, finding an ally, finding f- finding a slot, finding somebody to talk to who isn't the person who's who's doing them down can also be a, can also be a solution.
1: Yeah, very much so. Is there anything you want to leave? Is there
0: any note that you want to leave us on, Marianne, before we ring off?
1: uh the world can change. I've you know I I, I had a message the other day from a reader who said her neck muscles were aching from nodding so much. Um, <laughs> but that she put this audio book, the audiobook of my book on in her car on a long car journey with her husband <laughs> so that he had to listen to it. And she said, it's amazing. He listens to me more. He asks me questions. You know, thank you so much. And I just think we can change the world one husband at a time. <laughs> Let's just try and do that. It's tipping, it's tipping.
0: Thank you so much, Marianne. I, I, could have sp- I could have spoken to you for much longer. I really appreciate you taking the time out. If you haven't read The Authority Gap, do go and get it. The link is in the chat that can help you, or you can go to Marianne's website, marianneseegart.com. Um, thank you so much to Odessa and Bonnie. And yeah, finally, thank you, Marianne. Let, let's keep in touch. And I'm really looking forward to the, the next chapter. Hopefully, the world will have changed.
1: Thanks very much. Delight to talk to you.
0: See you. Bye.
1: Bye.